hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. And, you know, just as a reminder, you know, as we near the end of the first 164 pages of this book, I just want to let folks know that this isn't like... That's not going to signify the end of the podcast. Um, I'm going to, I plan on getting into the 12 by 12. There's some other literature that I plan on uh, introducing as well. And then eventually I'm going to start exploring other forms of sobriety. While AA is probably going to remain kind of my primary go-to, I'm open to that changing. I'm open to learning about smart recovery and life ring and uh, other other forms of recovery, even if it's not something I can apply to my own sobriety. I think it's important to remain teachable. I think it's important to remain open. Currently, do feel like that AA is what has been the best fit for me, uh, but I'm not beholden to that idea being the end-all or be-all. I know it doesn't have a monopoly on recovery. So for the newcomers, the reason why I've started with AA or even am using the big book as like sort of the start of this or why the the podcast is even named what it is, is I know a lot of people end up starting here. I know a lot of people end up starting at AA, especially folks that are secular that maybe don't know about smart recovery or life ring, or have just been told this is the, uh, you know, last house on the block. I know that it is easy to feel a little bit like an outcast in a group of outcasts when you don't believe in certain religions or certain uh, metaphysical ideologies. And so this is hopefully a way for folks to kind of digest some of that stuff and make the decision on whether or not it's the right fit for them. But I'm hoping to present it in a way that explores it to its fullest before folks just dismiss it out of hand. Again, if AA ends up not being something that works for you, uh, ends up not even being a, you know, really uh, a good fit, that's great. That's fine. I'm, I'm perfectly open to that. Um, I hope that there's still information that can be gleaned from the things that I talk about in here. And I hope that uh, even at the end of the day, you know, folks are still learning something as, as I'm learning things. So I'm still kind of coming over, getting over, you know, this whole COVID thing. I have like a perpetual nasally kind of blockage. It's not really blocked, but it feels blocked. And it's kind of affecting my, my vocal patterns, how my speech sounds. It's affecting the way that some words are coming out. So I'm having to kind of like over enunciate. Uh, it's also affecting my breathing a little bit. I'm probably 90% through the woods. The longest anything's really stuck around for me. So it's been interesting. I do feel healthier and more energetic than I have in the last three weeks or so. And a little bit more clear headed. That last episode was pretty rough. Uh, You know, part of me apologizes for that. But a part of me is more than willing to share the bad days along with the good good days. You know, it's not all it's not all sunshine and rainbows and, and lollipops. So kind of speaking to that, where I'm at now is, you know, just before the COVID thing hit me, I had broken up with my girlfriend of over a year. And in that process, you know, rolling into uh, the COVID, I was given an opportunity to sort of reset. I didn't have the energy for social media. I didn't have the energy for much of anything. Yeah, you know, I play video games to to wind down and as a form of enjoyment. I enjoy a lot of like nerdy things. You know, I say that I wasn't really using social media, but I was. I was using uh, TikTok. I was just stuck on a loop with that. It's the only thing I seem to have energy for because it was so mindless and can be so easily like dismissed. So as a, a form of healing from breaking things off with my ex, it really wasn't and hasn't been a good fit. The reset was great. I was able to just kind of lie low and think things through and allow my emotions to be emotions. Uh, I didn't really want to drink. It did feel like I was in a perpetual hangover for a lot of it, as I mentioned before. But I, I realized that I was kind of numbed to a lot of what I should be going through. You know, while I did break things off with my girlfriend... Uh, that's still something to mourn. You know, the relationship wasn't all bad. Uh, it wasn't toxic, I wouldn't say. Uh, it just wasn't, it wasn't healthy either. 
And I'd be doing myself a disservice if I didn't allow myself real proper time to mourn that. What I've learned about myself over the years is that I kind of take things in waves. And as a way to sort of remedy old behavior, rather than avoid these feelings, I've been sort of allowing myself to just kind of call them up as needed. That makes it seem like I'm in full control. It's not really the case. What I mean is, is instead of what would be old behavior would be me uh, blindly playing a video game that I barely was even interested in just to avoid how I was feeling. Whereas I've been checking in with myself pretty regularly, making sure that while I am kind of in a, a fugue state, I'm kind of relaxed and, and, you know, separate from people. I'm not going out. I'm not doing things. Um, how much of my activities are a way of avoidance? What, what am I doing to actually heal through this stuff? Am I giving myself the proper time to really, you know, think about things and how I feel and where it's left me? The last thing I want is for me to not have learned or grow from any of these both experiences. And in that process, you know, I've, I'm still kind of questioning my my involvement with this program. The more I read this book this way, the more that I express this stuff, the more that I still remain sober. It has me kind of just not in doubt, but just kind of wondering what's next. You know, because I, I don't know that my full involvement with the program is going to remain. Um, that's stuff I've said before. But I think this time, the, now that I've had this real time to just sit and fucking think, because that's all I had the energy for, I think what I'm what I'm seeing is that this might not be the fit for me. You know, I'm maintaining my sobriety. I'm a little grouchy lately. I think that's reasonable, given everything. I don't feel like I'm done learning at all. So that's still a very healthy feeling for me. And that's typically what would happen is I would, I would stop something that I've been doing for a while because I feel like I'm done learning. The only reason really that I haven't actually pulled the trigger on maybe stopping AA as my form of recovery uh, is, well, some of it's the podcast. Some of it is, I do this all the time with everything else. So how, how am I sure that this one isn't different? I, you know, I stop things mid stride constantly. And I've been at this for about three years, almost three years. In December, it'll be three years. So I need to make damn sure that if this is something I feel like that I could move away from, that I have a plan in place for where I'm moving to. Because my recovery needs to remain paramount. I can't risk, personally, uh, another bout of drinking. You know, 10 years of just utter bullshit. And while... My actions were my own, and a lot of that was because I wasn't healthily working on myself. So much of it was my drinking, and the uncontrollable aspect and the uncontrollable nature of that drinking, and how easy it is for me to fall into the drinking, allow that to then cease all production on the work that I've been doing. I still remain feeling like drinking doesn't serve me. I'm not missing anything by not drinking. There's nothing of value there for me. So now I just need to make sure that I'm staying true to my recovery. And so that's kind of, you know, that's where I'm at. Um, nothing too profound or crazy. I'm going to get right into the Stoic reading. Today's big book reading is going to be on the uh, the last half of Two Employers. Um, again, this is not my favorite chapter. I, I do find some value in some of the things in there. A lot of it is is the value I find is kind of contradictory to what the book is saying. But again, it's an important part of the history of the lore of how far away Alcoholics Anonymous has moved away from the original message uh, in a positive way, the ways that it's grown, you know, the, makes me feel kind of content to know that they can move away from this aspect, which means that they hopefully can move away from the other aspects, like the, the lack of inclusivity to folks that are non-religious, that sort of thing. But so without further ado, I'm going to jump right into the Stoic reading and then we'll get right into right into the last part of Two Employers. Okay, this is the Stoic reading for November 2nd. Binding our wishes to what will be. But I haven't at any time been hindered in my will nor forced against it. And how is this possible? I have bound up my choice to act with the will of God. God wills that I be sick, such is my will. He wills that I should choose something, so do I. He wills that I reach for something, or something be given to me. I wish for the same. What God doesn't will, I do not wish for. Epictetus Discourses 4.1.89 
When General Dwight D. Eisenhower wrote to his wife on the eve of the invasion of Normandy, he told her, Everything we could think of has been done. The troops are fit. Everybody has done his best. The answer is in the lap of the gods. He'd done everything he could, and now what would happen would happen as Epictetus might say. He has ready to bear whatever that was. In fact, Eisenhower had written another letter that night and prepared it for the release in case the invasion failed. In failure was what God, or fate, or luck, or whatever you want to call it, willed he was ready. There is a wonderful lesson there. The man in charge of perhaps the most powerful army the world had ever assembled, on the eve of the most expertly organized and planned invasion the world will hopefully ever know, was humble enough to know that the outcome ultimately belonged to someone or something bigger than him. And so it goes with our, all our ventures. No matter how much preparation, no matter how skilled or smart we are, the ultimate outcome is in the lap of the gods. The sooner we know that, the better we will be. Well, okay, so I'm not gonna, not a fan of this one, but there is, I feel, some something to be gleaned from it. First and foremost, the idea that no matter what kind of preparation you have, or lack thereof, is ultimately it's just all up to God anyways, so why bother? Or, you know, why why give it a shot, you know, at all? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't sit well with me. None of that sits well with me. Now, I, I'm going to focus mainly on Eisenhower's situation. Despite him feeling like his efforts didn't matter, he did his best to prepare for the best outcome. And that's what I'm going to take away from this. Um, it would be easy for me to get stuck on the God stuff, and that's just not necessary. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows exactly where I stand on that, or at least has a good idea. And at the end of the day, getting stuck on the things that don't apply to me or don't hold value for me gives them a value that you know just happens to be a negative value. And I'd rather just keep it as, as it is. There's just nothing there for me. But when we look at Eisenhower having proven himself capable in his situation, proving that he was prepared, as prepared as he possibly could be, proving that those preparations mattered, but being still prepared for either outcome is, I think, a very healthy way of approaching most things. I typically do my best. That doesn't mean that I will get the best in return. That doesn't mean I will get the best possible outcome. But when you consider luck and how some people have described how luck works, Really, luck is just being prepared for opportunity and saying yes to that opportunity. If I leave myself unprepared, then that is a guarantee that I will miss out on certain opp opportunities. Being fully prepared doesn't mean that I will have access to all opportunities and that nothing but good things will happen, but it does mean that if certain opportunities come my way, I'm prepared for them regardless of what that outcome might be. That's how I've been trying to leave, lead my life. Me, me not drinking, me working on myself, healing my self-discovery, working on my, my emotions and how I react to them, that's preparing me for opportunities that I think I've missed the whole time I was drinking. Even the little windows where I was sober, I wasn't preparing myself for the best outcomes. Lately, I have been. And while, like, at the end of the day, some opportunities maybe are still being missed, I'm, I'm ready for them. I'm ready for them even if I say no. I'm ready for them even if they're not something that fully come my way. I can do better. You know, if I'm going to speak personally, I can speak in regards to this podcast. And I'm hoping that that will change. While I'm prepared to share my story whenever I, I need to, I haven't really been putting myself out there. So in light of that kind of need for preparation in order to take advantage of opportunity, I also have to kind of chase down some opportunities. So, you know, and that means getting ready for having guests on, because that was a promise I made, getting ready to, to be a guest on other shows now that I have free time, um, actually putting the word out about my podcast, advertising a little bit, uh, even if I'm not any good at it, you know, doing certain things. Um, the more I look at it, you know, the more that I feel that I'm not fully prepared. So if I'm going to follow the advice of this reading, then, then that means I have some work to do. Uh, now, again, I don't think that, you know, it's in God's hands or whatever. Um, I just think that, you know, sometimes things don't work out. And if that's the case, I am satisfied if they don't work out knowing that I did my best and I was ready for them and I was ready for either outcome. That to me is an example of living without expectations. 
You know, I, I've talked about that before. That doesn't mean that you can't expect certain things, but in this instance, if I'm prepared for every outcome, I'm as ready as I can be for any opportunity that might fit me. And I don't expect one of those things to go a certain way. I can't be disappointed, but that doesn't leave me unprepared. I hope that makes sense. Um, without further ado, we'll get right into uh, the next and final part of two employers. So for those following along, we left off on page 144. Uh, this was not the top of the page. The last sentence that I had read was the man must decide for himself. And it's in reference to uh, this weird situation where it's being suggested that your boss present this book to his employee after he sought medical condition and he's in like a sick enough state to accept it. I don't know. It gets a little weirder, but I've kind of skipped ahead a little bit because it's been a while since I read this chapter. And there's some good stuff coming that's worth talking about in a, in a positive way. Again, for folks that have been keeping up, I know I've been pretty hard on this chapter. Uh, I just feel like it's really just full of so much absurdity that it has to be called out. What I appreciate about this program is there's no... There's nothing that says that you can't question this stuff and doubt this stuff. There's fundamentalists in the program that might tell you that. But the program itself doesn't say anything about casting doubt on what's written in these pages. And it's healthy to do that. It's absolutely healthy to do that. If you do run into people in program that are telling you that you just kind of take this as gospel, and if it's not written in the book, then it doesn't have value. I just honestly, like... I hate to tell people to steer clear of certain people, but sometimes that's just your best bet. They kind of have to find that message out on their own that that's not the case. It's not always of value to confront them, mainly because those types of folks are pretty well stuck in their ways. Uh, the best thing to do is to lead by continued example. You know, present that you're a healthy individual who still questions this stuff, that you can remain sober and lead a good, healthy life, uh, despite having doubts about some of the language that they've used in this book, some of the literature that the AA folks have presented. That's really the best way to go about it. I mean, that's not to say that you can't get into these discussions with folks. I would I would suggest, though, that if you find yourself, because this is true of me, I'm just offering this as a suggestion, if you find yourself in these heated arguments constantly and that you they don't seem to go anywhere, you know, just ask yourself, are you being contrary to be contrary? Are you being confrontational specifically to be confrontational? Are you offering your viewpoint specifically because you know it'll get a rise out of others? If that's the case, then that's not healthy either. I would just caution against that because, because personally, I feel like there's a difference between standing up for your own beliefs and making this program accessible to others that might share those or your lack of belief, if that's the case, and shoving it down another person's throat. And if you're finding yourself being confrontational specifically because you know it'll get a rise out of a certain people, then that to me, that's what that feels like. You're shoving this in their face. If they're not ready to hear it, they're not interested in hearing it, then that's fine. If they're the kind of people that are constantly shoving it in others' faces, that might be a confrontation worth worth going down. You know, that, that might be worth addressing. But if if you're engaging in that specifically because others engage in that, then that's that's just unhealthy behavior. You know, it's... It's not the motivation I, I personally am looking for. It's not the thing that drives me. I'm not out here trying to convert people to atheism or agnosticism or convert them to my way of AA or tell them that AA is broken and wrong and and maybe tell them that, you know, what they're doing is is doesn't have value. Like, again, if somebody is really making somebody feel uncomfortable, that's different. I, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to call that out. If, if somebody is constantly like undermining another person's value as a person due to their belief system, I'm going to call that out as well. If somebody's being predatory, I'm absolutely going to call that out 100%. And I don't care if that offends people. <laughs> if somebody's being predatory in the group, I'm fucking calling that out. Um, if they're being harmful, I'm going to call that out as well. There might be a healthier way of doing that. Sometimes I don't always pick that healthy way, but remaining silent that's not a, for me, that's not really an option. But again, I just, I just can't go about starting fights with folks. I did that a lot in my youth. It didn't get any, get anybody anywhere. Uh, and at the end of the day, I ended up just being as big of an asshole as I felt like other people were. Without further ado though, let's get into the reading. Again, this is roughly the middle of 144, I think. 
no, almost the end of 144. It's the last paragraph, it looks like. You are betting, of course, that your changed attitude plus the contents of this book will turn the trick. In some cases, it will, and in others, it may not. But we think that if you persevere, the percentage of success will gratify you. As our work spreads and our numbers increase, we hope your employees may be put in personal contact with some of us. Meanwhile, we are sure a group a great deal can be accomplished by the use of the book alone. On your employee's return, talk with him. Ask him if he thinks he has the answer. If he feels free to discuss his problems with you, if he knows you understand and will not be upset by anything he wishes to say, he will probably off, be off to a fast start. Again, do not do this. This is basically telling you to have like a fourth step meeting with your employee as if you're some sort of a sponsor. Don't get so involved in other people's recovery as an employer that you're asking questions like this. That's not your job as an employer. As much as you might care, as much as you might feel like empathetic, as much as you feel like you might have something like that to offer, the employee-employer situation is already really fucking weird in this country. It doesn't need to be made weirder with this kind of stuff. This is just a road, it's a recipe for disaster to get that involved in, the, in, the, in people's lives that way. If they want to meet you outside of work at an AA program or a meeting or smart recovery or whatever, and you've given that suggestion and you run into them, that's different. I would strongly recommend you do not sponsor that person, but sharing your story with them in that setting is definitely a different situation than like inviting them into your office after they've had a huge bender and ended up in rehab and being like, so buddy, you ready to talk about AA? That's some culty sounding shit. Back to the reading. In this connection, can you remain undisturbed if the man proceeds to tell you shocking things? He may, for example, reveal that he has padded his expense account or that he has planned to take your best customers away from you. In fact, he may say almost anything if he has accepted our solution, which, as you know, demands rigorous honesty. As an employer who is not an alcoholic, I don't imagine why you should know that. Can, your char can you charge this off as you would a bad account and start fresh with him? If he owes you money, you may wish to make terms. Look, if an employee comes to you and is like, hey, I'm working this program... Uh, or, or even just comes to you without without that as a precursor. He's, he's a problem employee, but he, you know, he comes to you and he's like, I'm trying to set things right. And, and he comes with some sort of an honesty thing like this. You know, use your best judgment. But honestly, if they're breaking laws and shit, like it's your responsibility as an employer to make the right choices for, for your job and for the business that you're working at. I'm not a huge fucking capitalist, you know, bootlicker. So that's there's some leeway to that for me i think though that if your employees breaking the law and they're breaking your trust and they come to you and they're like hey i've been i've been fucking this business over pretty regularly since i got here that that's some toxic behavior that can't necessarily just be swept under the rug because hey they found god and they're an aa or whatever the case may be as an employee i strongly recommend that you work with your sponsor on whether or not you even go to your employer with certain things like this don't just go half-cocked. If it's a legal matter, contact a lawyer. Definitely. I would stand by that. I've said that before. If you've done something that's illegal at your business, don't just go in there on good faith expecting that things are going to work out for you because you now have faith in some sort of a program of recovery. You know, taking ownership and putting yourself in a position where the opportunity that you get, <laughs> if we're going to use that, uh, is jail time, that's not helpful to anybody. That doesn't mean try to get out of anything it means go in there with the best possible outcome in mind and just going straight into your boss's office and being like well thanks for giving me the big book of alcoholics anonymous here's my fourth step that shouldn't be an option either if he speaks of his home situation you can undoubtedly make helpful suggestions don't do that do not do new new do not do that don't tell your employees how to live their life at home the fuck can he talk frankly with you so long as he does not bear business tales or criticize his associates? With this kind of employee, such an attitude will command undying loyalty. <sighs> the greatest enemies of us alcoholics are resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration, and fear. Now, this I agree with. These are, these are huge, huge enemies of folks like us. Not necessarily alcoholics, but when it does come to alcoholics, we are a sensitive lot, man. Good chunk of us are just overtly sensitive and can find a way to make anything personal uh and that that's true that you know resentment i feel like is the number one cause for going down certain rabbit holes resentment for yourself resentment for others unresolved resentments 
can eat your soul alive, whether you believe in the metaphysical one or not. Just that inner core of who you are can be completely destroyed by these things. I mean, resentment, jealousy, envy, and frustration and fear, all those things are what led me to try to kill somebody and what led me to try to kill myself. Alcohol exasperated those, those issues and gave me an opportunity to remain numb to them until they, you know, basically took me out. But those were the underlying issues. So I do appreciate the book kind of doubling down on that, even though it's it's right smack in the middle of a weird chapter. Wherever men are gathered together in business, there will be rivalries and arising out of these a certain amount of office politics. I agree with that as well. Not necessarily just men, but uh, our our current work situation, most across the board, kind of does uh, involve a certain amount of not rivalries, but competition in, in some ways. Um I don't know how healthy that is. Sometimes we alcoholics have an idea that people are trying to pull us down. Often, this is not so at all. But sometimes our drinking will be used politically. So I kind of see where it's going with this. Honestly, I, I've told a few people that I'm in recovery that I don't drink. My current work situation kind of allowed that to be a safe thing for me to say. I don't talk a lot about it. But we have, as a group, gone out to... Uh, the bar to do happy hour and rather than not go at all i've just made it pretty clear that i don't drink and of course that leads down to some questions like why don't you drink and i kind of gloss over that but i leave it pretty simple that you know drinking and me don't get along i'm kind of allergic to it so i just leave it be there's no reason for me to share any more than that i have worked in environments where people get super personal with each other's details and it inevitably just creates unnecessary drama now, I have one coworker where this hasn't been the case. Me and her have talked about some serious things. We have we have uh, similar traumas that we've dealt with in life. She's not in recovery, but she has family that's in recovery. Uh, we both have similar mental health struggles that we have been overcoming. So we talk a lot about that kind of stuff. So far, that has worked out. But I would say that's one out of a hundred <laughs> times where that's it's been a healthy exchange. So just be wary. Don't share this with everybody. I know you're going to want to go and tell everybody that you're sober and that you're free alcohol, free from alcohol, if that's what, you know, the kind of personality you have. And just he- I just hesitate to, you know, don't be very selective who you share such an important part of yourself with. I guess would be the easiest way to say that. One instance comes to mind in which a malicious individual was always making friendly little jokes about an alcoholic's drinking exploits. In this way, he was slyly carrying tales. In another case, an alcoholic was sent to a hospital for treatment. Only a few knew of it at first, but within a short time, it was billboarded throughout the entire company. Naturally, this sort of thing decreased the man's chance of recovery. The employer can many times protect the victims from this kind of talk. The employer cannot play favorites, but he can always defend a man from needless provocation and unfair criticism. Now, see, the thing is, is that the book does contradict itself with this by saying that if somebody is struggling with this kind of stuff, that you can give them full attention on that, which to me means that you're not really giving attention to the people that aren't struggling. You're only worrying about those that aren't doing a good job. So that is kind of paying, playing favorites in a way. But as an employer, yeah, don't try not to play favorites. As a class, alcoholics are energetic people. I don't know how that could possibly be true. Like, I don't know why that would be, uh, but whatever. They work hard and they play hard. Your man should be on his metal to make good. I'm going to tell you right now, I did not work hard in order to play hard. I have always been, I will own this, uh, the lazy person you give a job to to find the easiest way to do it. Because I will take an eight-hour workload, turn it into three or four, and find a way to just use the other four for my own my own my own ends i mean if you're going to pay me for eight hours worth of work and the expectation is that eight hours worth of work will be done in that eight hour section and i get it done earlier i'm going to make the most of the rest of the time for myself that to me is not working hard that's working smart uh, but not working hard your man should be on his metal to make good being somewhat weakened and faced with physical and mental readjustment to a life which knows no alcohol he may overdo You may have to curb his desire to work 16 hours a day. You may need to encourage him to play once in a while. He may wish to do a lot for other alcoholics and something of the sort may come up during business hours. A reasonable amount of latitude will be helpful. This work is necessary to maintain his sobriety. 
After your man has gone along without drinking for a few months, you may be able to make use of his services with other employees who are giving you the alcoholic runaround, provided, of course, they are willing to have a third party in the picture. An alcoholic who has recovered, beholds a relatively unimportant job, can talk to a man with a better position. Being on a radically different basis of life, he will never take advantage of the situation. What? I don't know why idea that would be true. What a weird set of assumptions to make. Why, why wouldn't there still be an opening? Just because, again, just because somebody is working this program doesn't mean that they are radically different. That's the hope. But, but people are still human. And people in recovery can still make vile decisions that fuck other people's lives up. Always be protective of that. Be, be wary of, I mean, don't be paranoid. Don't, you know, don't, and again, you don't even have to do this. You don't have to follow this example, the, the, this chain of thought I have going on right now. But be wary. Be understanding that other people are still going to struggle even in recovery. This is such a weird, I don't know why this hasn't really stood out to me before. Being on a radically different basis of life, he will never take advantage of the situation. That just simply is not fucking true. I have seen people who, in recovery, have been given positions of importance at the the AA meeting hall and have, you know, had a, a slight shift in morale and decided to steal all of the money that people had been giving him for the room rents and booked it. Never came back. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't put people who are in recovery in positions to accept those kinds of things, but it shouldn't have fucking surprised anybody, to be quite honest. And the reason why is because there's so many stories of people who, who on the surface are doing this program 100% who just, who just tank and just leave and don't tell anybody that there's anything wrong. I myself did that. I didn't fuck the meeting hall over, but I fucked my fiance over at the time out of the blue. No, no real reason for it to have happened. Went off and drank. Again, with no re- everybody was surprised by it because that's not the front-facing part of me that I was presenting. I, nobody knew I was even struggling. So this, he will never take advantage of the situation is terrible advice. Like, it's just sort of leading people for failure. Again, be prepared for any possible opportunity or outcome. That means being prepared for the possibility that, yeah, someone can be trusted like this, but also for the possibility that they may end up still having a little bit of scumbaggery that they haven't worked all the way through, and that won't come till later. Back to the reading. Your man may be trusted. Long experience with alcoholic excuses naturally arouses suspicion. When his wife next calls saying he is sick, you may jump to the conclusion he is drunk. If he is and still trying to recover, he will tell you about it even if it means the loss of his job. Again, not necessarily true. Most folks in NAA or a program of recovery like this are doing their best to be honest, but it doesn't mean that they're just like incapable of lying. <sighs> so weird. Okay. For he knows he must be honest if he would live at all. He will, uh, he will appreciate, he will appreciate knowing you are not bothering your head about him, that you're not suspicious, nor are you trying to run his life. So he will be shielded from temptation to drink. If he is consciously following the program of recovery, he can go anywhere your business may call him. In case he does... Now, okay, so I I can kind of get behind a little bit of what this is saying in a different way. If somebody is really putting their best foot forward, despite things they may have done in the past that came across as lazy or unproductive, and they're currently putting their best foot forward, the best thing to do can be to just give them room to do that. Allow them to show you. If you're constantly putting them in a place where a position where they can't be allowed to make mistakes, then they'll never, they'll never be able to prove that to you. There will always be that doubt. And you know that that goes true for relationships as well. Working relationships obviously can have some of that. As in in this instance, I can see how that is a viable thing. Don't continue to always mistrust your previously uh, struggling employee if they're putting real effort into changing. Uh, in case he does stumble, even once, you will have to decide whether to let him go. If you are sure he doesn't mean business, there is no doubt you should discharge him. If, on the contrary, you are sure he is doing his utmost, you may wish to give him another chance. But you should feel under no obligation to keep him on, for your obligation has been well discharged already. There is another thing you might wish to do. If your organization is a large one, your junior executive might be provided with this book. You might let them know you have no quarrel with the alcoholics of your organization. 
these juniors are often in a difficult position. Men under them are frequently their friends. So, for one reason or another, they cover these men, hoping matters will take a turn for the better. They often jeopardize their own positions by trying to help serious drinkers who should have been fired long ago or else given an opportunity to get well. After reading this book, a junior executive can go to such a man and say approximately this. Look here, Ed. Do you want to stop drinking or not? You put me on the spot every time you get drunk. It isn't fair to me or the firm. I have been learning something about alcoholism. If you are an alcoholic, you are a mighty sick man. You act like one. The firm wants to help you get over it. And if you are interested, there is a way out. If you take it, your past will be forgotten, and the fact that you went away for treatment will not be mentioned. But if you cannot or will not stop drinking, I think you ought to resign. Oh my god. Yeah, I nominate this chapter for the absolute biggest reason why the Alcoholics Anonymous tomb should be rewritten for modern times. None of this should be done. Absolutely none of this. You should not hand this book over to a junior executive who's going to then go to his underlings and tell him whatever that fucking bullshit was. Yeah, I'm a little irritated. I don't remember this for some reason. I thought... I mean, I've read this book a few times. Maybe I've just sort of glossed over some of this because I didn't feel like it applied to anything. And I was like, man, eh, it's not that big a deal. But this is really, this is bullshit. This is terrible advice. It's not even just terrible advice for a business setting, just in general. Like the, the premise of this whole program so far has been you, you as a person need to decide if you're an alcoholic. And if that's the case, then you decide your path on getting better based on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That whole phrasing that it just said was like, no, go to this guy that you know is an alcoholic, tell him you think he's a drunk and f tell him you better figure it out. Join this programmer. You need to quit. Like that's such utter nonsense. Ugh. Your junior executive may not agree with the contents of our book. He need not and often should, should not show it to his alcoholic prospect. You just fucking told him to. But at least he will understand the problem and will no longer be misled by ordinary promises. He will be able to take a position with such a man which is eminently fair and square. He will have no further reason for covering up an alcoholic employee. It boils right down to this. No man should be fired just because he is an alcoholic. If he wants to stop, he should be afforded a real chance. If he cannot or does not want to stop, he should be discharged. The exceptions are few. No man should be fired because he's an alcoholic. But if he doesn't want to stop, he should be discharged. So they should be fired if they're an alcoholic. No man should be fired. F whatever. I just fucking completely disregard that paragraph. Total nonsense. We think this method of approach will accomplish several things. It will permit the rehabilitation of good men. At the same time, you will feel no reluctance to rid yourself of those who cannot or will not stop. Alcoholism may be causing your organization considerable damage in its waste of time, men, and reputation. We hope our suggestions will help you plug up this sometimes serious leak. We think we are sensible when we urge that you stop this waste and give your worthwhile man a chance. Okay, look. If people that are working, first, it just seems like this entire chapter is only written from one kind of employer-employee relationship perspective. I get that the people that wrote, that the gentleman who wrote this was a higher up kind of businessman, but I feel like in 1938 or whatever, 36, when this book was actually written, 33, you know, there's some discrepancies on when the actual time frame was the physical writing of the book took place. It doesn't matter. That rough general time. I feel like there was obviously more job types than what this person is describing. And I feel like that this angle of only one type of relationship between business person and their employees is so tone deaf and completely lived, leaves out an entire subsect of people that have different job types. There are industries where drinking is just so ingrained in the industry that there's no way a boss would actually present somebody with this information unless they themselves were in recovery. And in that sense, they wouldn't be going around telling all their other employees that they're alcoholics and they need to join AA because that's fucking ridiculous. But if you find yourself in a position where you are the employer and you have somebody who's having difficulty drinking, again, I'm just going to say, offer them the very simple HR style of this is what we have to offer if this is something you're struggling with and fucking leave it at that. You can only do so much. If somebody doesn't find themselves wanting to stop, don't be a bleeding deacon and like force, you know, the, the situation to where you are playing favorites and letting them get a pass. You're not saving anybody by doing that. 
it kind of comes down to like if you have a friend that is constantly drinking and you're constantly saving them, maybe they're just never going to reach the bottom they need to. As hard as it might be to let people fall. The same kind of methodology goes to people that are in recovery and find themselves in a place of employer versus employee. Anyways, back to the reading. The other day, an approach was made to the vice president of a large industrial concern. He remarked, I'm glad you fellows got over your drinking, but the policy of this company is not to interfere with the habits of our employees. If a man drinks so much that his job suffers, we fire him. I don't see how you can be of any help to us, for as you see, we don't have any alcoholic problem. This same company spends millions for research every year. Their cost of production is figured to a fine decimal point. They have recreational facilities. There is company insurance. There is a real interest, both humanitarian and business, in the well-being of employees. But how alcoholism, well, they just don't believe they have it. Perhaps this is a typical attitude. We, who have collectively seen a great deal of business life, at least from the alcoholic angle, had to smile at this gentleman's sincere opinion. He might be sh like, are they just wandering around different businesses? Like, hey, you guys got a drinking problem? What, what is this? What is this conversation? <laughs> How does this just come up? This seems like they went on a sales call. It seems like they went on a, a fucking door knocking Jehovah's Witness like sales call. Hey, we're we're not drunks no more. Uh, do you got any? Can we fix some your can we fix your drunks? Can we give you this book? We're here to talk about alcoholism. The history of this program is so weird, man. Some of it is fascinating and interesting and entertaining and just, you know, the fact that this program could survive through the decades based on some of this just absurdity is is just impressive to me. That means they figured something out. That's why I keep coming back to it, honestly. If this dysfunctional group of just weirdos can make this group a thing that surpasses decades and decades of heavy scrutiny, I, I feel like there's value here. And this has just proven it even more. He might be shocked if he knew how much alcoholism is costing his organization a year. That company may harbor many actual or potential alcoholics. We believe that managers of large enterprises often have little, little idea how prevalent this problem is. Even if you feel your organization has no alcoholic problem, it may pay to take another look down the line. You may make some interesting discoveries. But how are you going to take a look if you're not supposed to be running around calling people alcoholics? Fucking Hank, what the hell? Of course, this chapter refers to alcoholics, sick, sick people, deranged men. What our friend, the vice president, had in mind was the habitual or whoopee drinker. As to them, his policy is undoubtedly sound, but he did not distinguish between such people and the alcoholic. It is not to be expected that an alcoholic employee will receive a disproportionate amount of time and attention. He should not be made a favorite. The right kind of man, the kind who recovers, will not want this sort of thing. He will not impose. Far from it. He will work like the devil and thank you to his dying day. Today, I own a little company. There are two alcoholic employees who produce as much as five normal salesmen. But why not? They have a new attitude and they have been saved from the living death. I have enjoyed every moment spent in getting them straightened out. And that again, that just I just feel like that's setting people up for uh, possibly unmet expectations. His two alcoholic employees or his best employees look man if i get sober i have no superiority over the people around me i am one of those that believes that i i should not need extra attention for my recovery i shouldn't be treated any differently they shouldn't be applauded you know yeah i overcame something that was killing me uh it took me 10 years of just utter destruction to get to that point I applaud my own victories, and I share those victories with others, but it comes with no expectation that people treat me differently, based on the fact that I've recovered from something that the majority of Americans don't suffer from. Something that I allowed myself to live in, knowing I had answers. You know, my situation might be a lot different than others. I had exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I just fucking ignored it. I just went on my life without it knowing that I had a solution for my problems that worked perfectly fine. So while I do revel in my successes personally, you know, I am excited that I'm approaching three years. I will share that with people. And I hope that other people see that as a form of inspiration. I don't expect anybody to treat me differently for it. And it's weird that they're pointing this out as if somehow these two who are alcoholics are better performers specifically because they're alcoholics. I can't imagine why that would seem important. I mean, outside of them selling this, man, like that was just like a, like 
if you're struggling with drinking and you're listening to this podcast, you still haven't made the decision on whether or not you're going to get sober. Don't get sober under the guise that you're somehow going to outperform everybody around you at life. The whole purpose of this is that you do better than you were doing, period. And this seems to have missed that mark. Uh, anyways, it says, see it, uh, appendix six. We shall be happy to hear from you if we can help. All right, let's take a look at appendix six. Okay, Appendix 6 is just like a general how to get in touch with AA back in the day before you had Google. And you could just, you know, at any point, do a quick search and find uh, whatever information you're looking for. So I'm finding that this episode's a little short. So what we're going to do here, I I think out of simplicity, I'm I'm just going to have this be a short episode this, this week. I think that's the best approach. I mean, I... I babbled my little bit of babbling at the beginning. You know, we wrapped up the last part of a chapter that I feel is just absolutely bizarre. We're about to go into the end of the book. I think I'm going to make that two parts as well. Uh, I'm going to try to space it out a little better than I did this this chapter. Uh, the last chapter of the book is A Vision for You, uh, pages 151 to 164. And, you know, I'm going to spend some time on that a little bit. And then... You know, yeah, let's just talk about what comes next. So first and foremost, if you want to get in touch with me um, and you have anything that you want to say to me or you're interested in being a guest, that's a possibility too. you know, let me know about this interest ahead of time. That way I can kind of work out the details. You could reach me at an atheist reads the big book of AA. I have both the Facebook group and the Facebook page. The Facebook page is just sort of me just kind of letting folks know that I have a new episode coming out. There's kind of minimal engagement because it's a very clunky format to use and it and it just doesn't seem organic at all, but it does give me some web presence. So if people are searching for this thing, plus in the future, if I do run another ad, 10 or $15 ad like I did in the past, then that's an easy way for me to do that. The other group, the Facebook group, hopefully will become an organic thing on its own that just sort of is a way for people to share information back and forth and share stories, and talk, and communicate, and get to know each other. You can also find me on Twitter at an atheist in. I truncated my name for some reason. I don't know why I did that. And then on Instagram, atheist underscore in underscore AA. Uh, typically, I only share my episodes on there, but that is one of the formats I'm hoping to get a little better at interacting on. Same with Twitter. Um, I will say that if you're on Twitter, there is kind of a, a, a neat little group called um, Recovery Posse. Uh, definitely check them out. It's a mix of folks. There's some people that are, you know, atheist agnostic. There's some folks that are a little bit more traditional. The main focus just seems to be recovery. And it's kind of neat to be inside a huge, just dumpster fire that is Twitter and to find this little nugget of a group of people that are just out looking, for, looking out for each other and showing each other support. Um, that kind of stuff makes me happy, so it's really cool to see just this huge, widely, worldwide, eclectic group of people kind of come together and and just help each other out. Um, and you can also find me via email at oneatheistnaa at gmail.com. Uh, so now that being said, the, the future of this, you know, after I read this last chapter, the future of this is going to be getting right into the 12 by 12. I think there will be one episode in between that where I read a letter from Bill Wilson that's about um, emotional sobriety. It's a great letter. It was written by Bill Wilson to a friend of his. Uh, his friend was having some struggles about depression, and Bill Wilson found that while he was writing this letter to him that he himself was struggling with depression. He hadn't really realized it, didn't know how to put a word on it or a name to it. And in that letter, he sort of understands or comes to the understanding that AA can offer him so much, but what it wasn't able to do was fix this underlying depression that he was sort of suffering from. You know, his notoriety in AA, his fame, the, the you know, the fact that he'd created this program, the success of that program, that was keeping him sober, but it was not addressing these underlying things. And so we had to do different work to kind of get to the bottom of that. I think the reason why I'm going to read that is because the 12 by 12 in a lot of ways was his own attempt at working through that depression. Now, he, he came through that uh, from a very religious perspective. So the 12 by 12 is going to be pretty God heavy. It's much more God heavy than the big book. But I think after having read the big book and kind of gotten us used to 
examining these things without getting hung up on these concepts of God and looking at God as a different form for folks that don't believe. I think that book's going to have a lot of different meanings than maybe we were attributing it uh, before. Like a lot of different ways of looking at this that can just be that moral psychology, that, that inner workings that make us a little bit better, keep us sober while keeping us in recovery. And, you know, so yeah, I think that's where we're, we're headed. Uh, I appreciate everybody who's taken the time to listen in to my, my podcast. Um, I have a pretty core group of folks that seem to be regularly listening and that means the world to me. Uh, it makes me really happy to know that, that, um, people are still finding value in what I'm putting out in the world. Uh, even if, um, sometimes I kind of stumble on what that value might be. I, again, this chapter was probably the worst one for me to get through. And it's ironic that it was considering there was almost no God stuff in there. And I think that just is, you know, that's just the nature of this program, man. And whether or not I stick it out in this program, it's something I'll keep revisiting. There's stuff I've learned in here that I'll just never unlearn or hopefully never unlearn. I say that having actually had an instance where I felt like I unlearned a lot of the stuff. There's experiences I've had in here that I, I don't ever want to forget and people I've met and things I've learned. So uh, as with my relationship, something I tried to get across to my ex, you know, th- none of that was a waste to me. None of this AA stuff will have been a waste to me. The interactions that we have with other people, whether we move away from them or not, is what makes us human. And it's what this is all about. And I'll always value what AA has brought me, even if I end up moving away from it. So with that being said, um, you know, this is uh, the end of the episode. I appreciate everybody keeping me sober one more day. And I uh, look forward to having you back. Thanks. Thanks.